Thanks for joining us today for the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. Season three has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. So tune in every week on Fridays. We will have a new episode. Also, this season, we will celebrate our 100th episode. So stay tuned for that. Just happens to fall on my birthday, October 28th. So we will have a big celebration. Thank you so much for joining us. And here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and I am lucky enough today to be joined with somebody in my hometown. I never get to do this. This is Michael Heck, and I am really pleased to have him with us. Welcome, Michael. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here with you, Jill. Yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, absolutely. So um, in terms of uh, one of the primary reasons why I'm here in, uh, uh, in understanding mental health, I've been in this field for about 22 years, um, started working with um, uh, youth, uh, troubled youth in the residential, uh, in a residential care uh, organization called Hillsides in Los Angeles. And, um, and ever since then, it's just, this has been a field that has kept me in it, um, decided to get licensed as a, a professional counselor, um, um, and I, and and then uh, <laughs> and then along the way had the opportunity to grow into this uh, position in terms of offering care and services. And um, about two and a half years ago, was invited to become the clinical director at Crossway um, in the Heights. And so I know that's a um, that's a nutshell version of 22 years, um, <laughs> but but. Uh, but essentially, uh, uh, it's been quite a ride. So, yeah. Yeah. So, how did you how did you first decide that you wanted to be <laughs> in the mental health field? What drew you to that? You know, um, when I hear people tell their career stories, it's often um, with a great deal of um, falling into kind of experience or something mm -hmm. unintentional happens. And so, um, I was actually in seminary. Uh, just starting seminary at the time that I stumbled into mental health. Um, I was, when, when I first started seminary, I was watching a lot of young um, and hopeful um, ministers um, wanting to take uh, internships and practicums in their church or a local church. And, and, um, and I, there was just something in my heart that wanted to do something a little different. And that's mm -hmm. when I started to search in the area um, of, not intentionally, but just something that I felt like was directly working with people on a daily basis mm -hmm. and uh, came across Hillside's Home for Children in Pasadena, California. Uh, reality was, is it worked with my seminary schedule quite well, and I was able to still <laughs> afford some pizza and, and be able to pay for my books. And so um, I can't say I had a grand revelation uh, that, that, that this is where I was supposed to be, but apparently this is where I was supposed to be. <laughs> Nice. So I was teaching a seminar this week uh, to pastors mm -hmm. on mental health. And one of the things that uh, we talked about was how 
under-resourced pastors are to deal with mental health issues because, mm-hmm. because people, you know, a large percentage of people, their first go-to when they have a problem is their pastor, right? Mm-hmm. And their pastors are not equipped with the deep kind of training that mental health professionals need, right? You know, it's interesting that you say that because one of the things that I realized in my journey was that in talking to a lot of pastors, um, a part of my role or vision for being a licensed therapist was to partner with the church, to partner with pastors in terms of offering services. And so um, I think um, some of my journey has been um, in a, in response to pastors who um don't feel equipped or need some place to refer to where they can trust. Um, because uh, the, the conversations about mental health in our, in our nation have grown exponentially over the last yes. several decades. And, and so I think that, it, you know, my personal journey, I've wanted to understand the integration of faith, um, psychology, theology, and I'm still very much in that journey, but um but it's very much on my mind when it comes to working with pastors in the church. And I guess you could say a part of my hope, part of my vision is to be able to help strengthen the church through mental health, because I know that this area, you know, I can in some ways empower pastors to live in their strengths while I'm living in mine. Right. And and there can be a kind of a, a tandem partnership. So I've met with a lot of care pastors and senior pastors and in order to uh, create this, create this conversation. Yeah, you know, it just feels like there needs to be a a pathway from pastors to resources like yourself. And I I always tell people refer, 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 because pastors, um, we're good at what we do. We're good at, you know, preaching and teaching and care and, Mm -hmm. you know, immediate crisis care, but we're not, we're not in it for, we're not trained to be in it for the long haul for, um, for long-term therapeutic treatment. Right. And that should, so that shouldn't be our role. Well, I think it's a different type of relationship. When you realize what you've just talked about, Jill, are two different relationships, and that's the pastoral role, and then the ther- and then the therapist role, the ther- mm-hmm. um, the therapeutic role. And there's definitely a place. There's definitely plenty of room for both in the life. Absolutely. Of and and I think when we understand how how um, strategically helpful both can be then we move into that dynamic of how does mental health partner with the strengthening and the healing of the church. So that way people can then go and serve and, and move in their uh, God-given gifts uh, while we, you know, get to support them as they do those things and celebrate the, um, the growth and the healing that occurs. So I, I think there's definitely plenty, there has to be room for both. Right. And that partnership is just is absolutely essential in the growth and life of the church. So I'm curious, um, I when I was in I was in long term residential treatment and their definition of trauma was anything that's less than nurturing. And I'm curious what you would how you would define trauma. I would say that that definition is probably a little too general. Um, Mm -hmm. and as, and, and if I don't necessarily mean to sound, uh, sound critical of that definition, but I think that, um, 
we, you know, as a therapist, I can see the difference between something that is an attachment issue versus something that is a traumatic issue. Okay. Um, and, and so, and, and uh, I noticed that um, attachment issues can definitely be a part of trauma. Um, um, but I like uh, Dr. Vanderkolk's definition very much. So I don't know if uh, you've read, if you've read his book, Body Keeps Absolutely. the Score. It's very much a popular um, book right now for, um, for uh, understanding trauma. And he, um, he defines it basically as an event that overwhelms the central nervous system. So he gets into kind of the neuropsychology right. of a person's experience. Um, you know, it alters the way that we process and recall memories um, that he, he in also integrates in his work a lot, some of the narrative, like how do we tell the story uh, of our moment? How do we tell um, the, the story of what happened back then? And then also understanding it's the, it's the imprint of pain, um, um, or pain, horror, and the fear of living inside of people. So in, in that sense, I think, um, uh, I don't know, I, I, I wouldn't say that you can define everything as a trauma, um, but if we were to go down that road, Joe, we could also say that the fall of humanity was definitely a significant trauma, right? Yes. And it, yes. And it needed a significant response of heaven in order to meet our ultimate need. Right. Um, and, and so I think that's a tension that we, uh, that you and I will probably sit with quite a bit today is understanding, right. you know, what is a, a, an experiential trauma that someone has in their life versus that longing that we have for God in all things. And because that longing is so deep and so expansive and because we are limited by our nature, um, that definitely creates kind of a, a trauma narrative at times, if you will. Absolutely. What percentage of people would you say are living, that's not the word, that carry trauma in their life um, at any given time? So I think I may be um, retracting some of my answer that I just gave to you a minute ago, <laughs> because I do believe that when um, when humanity fell, when what happened to Adam and Eve was deeply traumatic because there was the impact of, uh, um, of who we are mentally, emotionally, and relationally, right? And right. so I'm tempted to say all of us mm -hmm. um, that, that we, we all carry that longing um, for, um, you know, when we get up in the morning and we realize, gosh, it, it, is it supposed to be this way um, mm -hmm. all of the time? And, and I think, um, I think in, in, if we understand it theologically, if we understand it through the lenses of um, um, spiritual growth, and to a certain extent, we all have a longing for God. And, and I would say all of us, I know that's a long way to answer that question, mm -hmm. but I, I don't know if I could put a percentage on it because um, I know for me uh, that my need for God is pretty desperate all of the time. Right, right. You know, one of the things about mental health that I've observed is I think 
we're getting a little bit and maybe a smidgen better at um, talking about mental health. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I've observed is that people are using terminology of clinical terminology to describe a situational problem. So therefore, I'm so depressed today. Really, what they're trying to say is I'm really sad. Um, And or, oh, I'm having a panic attack. Really, what they're saying is I'm anxious about what's going on in this moment. And, and so I find this kind of um, frustrating dichotomy where people are using clinical terminology to describe everyday feeling. Have you noticed that? Yes. Um, and that's one of the challenges of mental health is to define what is what, like what is the experience the person is having? Um, that's one of the roles, you know, as a, as a, you know, as a gosh, for any person that is sitting with another person in their emotions is to help is to get deeper understanding of what that experience means. Mm-hmm. And so there's, you know, we know there's a very clear difference between a panic attack and an anxious moment. Um, and, and we also know that panic attacks are, are um, in, incredibly heavy and can be mm-hmm. quite debilitating. And, um, but it also shows, Jill, that we are doing our best as a, as a society to integrate. Mm-hmm. I think we're still, I think we're still um, on, you know, I think we still have some training wheels on in certain areas of understanding, especially with our youth, um, that uh, we're still trying to figure out the language of mental health and, and what it yes. means day in and day out. Um, because we, because as humans, we are meaning making, we want to create meaning with our words. And so I think in some ways, when someone says, uh, hey, I think I'm having a panic attack, in some ways, it's, it's it, the possibility of someone just trying to connect with another person might be there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like to be able to draw somebody in and say, hey, come and hear me and connect with me. You know, you mentioned um, youth and I, I'm just curious, I want to get back to trauma, but I'm just yeah. curious how you think um, COVID has affected our youth and maybe society as a whole, but I'm yeah. really observing some things with our youth and I'm wondering what you're, what you're observing. Um, I think that, so um, I think to clarify a lot of the work that I've done in, in the, in, since the onset of COVID has been um, quite a bit with couples. Okay. Um, some of the other therapists that I've worked with have worked a lot with youth. Okay. Uh, we've just created some specializations. Um, but what I've noticed, even as navigating my own, um, my own kids through this season, it's, it is, um, it definitely was a time of, of being more sedentary than normal. Mm-hmm. It was a time of staring into screens. It was a time of trying to figure out what the purpose of all of this is. And so I think in some ways for youth, it created, uh, um, uh, well, to throw out the word um, existential, what, what's the purpose of these things? Um, you know, we know our youth were um, wrestling with more and more depression and anxiety and mental health issues before COVID. Um, for many, it either enabled them to isolate more or it really impacted them because they were isolating more. And right. so in, in, in that sense, there's definitely been um, quite, uh, I would say, an existential impact regarding mental health um, yeah. in, in, our, in our youth. What are you seeing in couples? 
So um, in the cases of couples that I've seen, uh, I've seen a lot, um, almost all of them where the relationship was um, pretty poor before. And, and then they had to start working together, especially since most of them had kids. They had to work together even more in order to navigate um, through quarantine and through all of the right. different things. And so um, they couples really struggled with, with that. Many did not make it regarding the, the quarantine period of having to work together and um, the the, the bonding or the attachment um, was suffering before and, and quarantine and the, uh, the quarantine period really just pushed a lot of couples over. Well, and you can't when during quarantine, you couldn't escape, like get out to go to work and, you know, go away yeah. to go hang out with your friends. And, you know, you, that, that didn't exist because nobody was going anywhere. Yeah. The, the way that we would normally cope uh, and I and I meant to mention this and 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 forgot to, but um, you even had some some couples who were in what would be a self-structured separation. You know, they just they did not want to be together, but they didn't want to get a divorce. Right. Um, and so you know everything you've just said would then apply. They couldn't get away from each other. They still needed to take care of kids, and 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 unfortunately, those 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 ingredients. Uh, uh, for for couples who are already struggling did not go well yeah um, yeah and, and so normally what we would use to cope Jill um, for couples that it just wasn't there yeah well let's get back to trauma for a minute sure. mm -hmm. um, what kind of modalities or um, or therapeutic tools do you use to treat trauma you know, uh, several years ago, well, I will say um, when I was a student uh, getting my um, graduate uh, work done in psychology, I stumbled into um, this EMDR work. And, and I remember the, the clinical director of our program talking about it. I'm like, my first thought was, what is this? What is this uh, super hyper spirituality stuff I'm hearing about with this EMDR um, stuff? And and, and then the more I've grown in my practice, the more, um, um, more revolutionary EMDR has been for trauma. What um, does EMR do? I mean, what does DMR, EMDR do <laughs> for treatment? I mean, what, yeah. how does it help a person? Yeah, it's, um, it seems so um, ridiculously simple. Um, but it appeals to brain functioning and how our minds work. And so EMDR is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Um, don't try to say that, you know, 10 times. I'm fast. not going to, I could barely get out of EMDR, <laughs> Michael. <laughs> um, so if, if you think of it, EMDR, you know, let's, let's, let me oversimplify it um, because I think that's just the best way to, to understand it. Um, we have the REM cycle of sleep, right? Um, and that tends to be the period of sleep where we have a lot of dreams and a lot of processing emotions and, and, and we'll create a lot of dreams that have these narratives around our emotional, emotional stuff that we're working through. And, and so sometimes we'll wake up and, and you know, sometimes the dream ends well, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it's just open-ended. Um, and 
um, EMDR basically mimics that process. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen, it's kind of strange looking when somebody's in their REM sleep, you kind of see the eye right. the eyes going back and forth and you wonder if they're okay. Right. Um, and, uh, and so, um, but really the eye movement piece that we know that there is a connection between the eye movement left to right and, um, and how the brain processes certain events. Okay. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a therapy and a level of care now that has integrated those um, that has um, integrated certain um, interventions in order to replicate that process. So you're fully, you know, you're fully awake. Um, and I always tell people it's not a Jedi night trick. It's not, you know, it's nothing along those lines. It's not hypnotherapy. I know they're hypnotherapists and swear by it, but it, um, EMDR is not that, but it is simply the process of unclogging the log jam that trauma creates yeah and and um you know if you if if we did this um podcast two years ago um i would still be on the fence a little bit because i was just starting the training but i've just seen it do some really cool things mm -hmm. uh, so often um that that um i use it um quite often now for um, a variety of issues uh, not always trauma you know, um, in residential treatment is when I was first exposed to this and um, mm -hmm. they use, I know that you can use a light bar or you can mm -hmm. use tapping or, you know, different, different, you know, uh, tools to create that, that eye movement. I'm not going to complete the sentence yeah. there, but, um, yeah. but, you know, for many of the uh, veterans that were dealing with the horrors of war, mm -hmm. uh, they were using EMDR to help them to process. And like you said, create mm -hmm. that break up that log jam that trauma created, and they were able to actually isolate and process certain events and, and put themselves in a safe place um, again. So it was like bypassing the brain's, you know, circuitry to be right. able to say, you know, you're in a safe place. So kind of, um, the, here's what I really love about this therapy is that I'm relying on the client's mind to lead the process. Um, in talk therapy is helpful. We know it works. We also know it takes longer comparatively speaking to EMDR. Mm -hmm. And so what I will always tell people that, um, that actually brings some comfort to them is that um, you're not going to hear me speaking a whole lot. Mm -hmm. um, the therapist doesn't lead a whole lot. It's your, it's, we are relying on your mind's ability and, um, and capacity to be able to work through the trauma. And so for veterans, what, um, you know, if it's an isolating event, we're looking at kind of a landmine event, um, figuratively speaking, right. possibly literally, but, but, um, but what I've often found for veterans is that it typically allows for them. Yes, it does resolve the trauma related to the event, but then it also, um, because in so many ways it unclogs the log jam, they will then be free to move into childhood memories. Mm. They'll be free to move into more attachment issues, which is wonderful. It's been, it's been quite fascinating and amazing um, to, to see people resolve, um, 
episodes in order to then start resolving other issues in their life as well. And so EMDR, yes, is designed to um, address um, situations or episodes, but it definitely allows people to move into a more relational mindset where, hey, I want to start talking about my childhood stuff now. Um, and we, we celebrate that. It's not easy, but we celebrate that at the same yeah. time. Yeah, that's really interesting. When you and I talked earlier, uh, previously, one of the things that you talked about was a journey towards authenticity while processing yeah. trauma. What do you, what does that mean? Unpack that for me. So when I go back, when we go back to, a, um, um, uh, with a mindset of spiritual formation that God designed every person to be a certain person. He designed you and I to um, understand who we are in light of how he created us to be. And, and so um, authenticity has a lot to do with um, beginning to answer that question um, internally. Who, who am I supposed to be? Who, who do I want to be? Where do I want to grow? And so a lot of EMDR can actually help facilitate that process along with some narrative therapy and existential therapy. But I, for me, um, as a therapist, I, I love asking questions, and I know many of my colleagues do as well, asking questions that um, help individuals move towards a sense of authenticity. How do I feel about things? What do I want? What do I want to do with my loneliness? What do I want to do with my childhood stories? What, what do I want to do? And so there's this empowering piece that goes into that, mm. Jill, that, that allows for people to start embracing the questions of, that they have instead of anxiously worrying about whether or not life is a safe place to be, looking at the world and waiting for the world to you know, uh, drop something that's uncontrollable on them. And so in, in other words, we I, you know, want to help them turn internally in order to ask, start asking questions about, about who they are in terms of their authenticity. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so you, we also talked about the uh, impact or the possibility of someone um, being stuck in, in being a victim. Mm -hmm. And you know, this is something that I think about a lot as somebody who is in, you know, long-term treatment and, um, you know, kind of consistently processing what has happened and what is yeah. in the past. Where is hmm. the line between continuing to process that and being stuck in victim mode? Well, <clears throat> I think that someone who is stuck in that place has a very difficult time embracing what's happened. Mm. I think that is probably one of the most difficult things about understanding trauma and mental health in general, is that, <clears throat> that the things that happened to us, that the things that have happened to people that, um, that are horrifying, painful, um, and have caused um, great issues in their life, um, the impact of those things have to be embraced by us as indig individuals first that we understand, yes, I am the victim. Yes, I was injured and wounded by this, but now I have to own it. Now I have to be able to say, this is mine. And now in order for me to mm -hmm. live my life day in and day out, I have to pay attention to the symptoms. I have to pay attention to my self-talk. 
I have to pay attention to my nutrition, my sleep, my medication use. And, and so in, in that sense, when what I found is when people are stuck in that place of being a victim, there's a certain level of um, um, validity um, that, that I have. I understand why people would be stuck there. There is compassion for that. But at the same time, you want them to continue to heal and grow. And, and you want them to be able to move forward with their life. And so I think ownership over the impact of the trauma is incredibly important for, uh, for growth and healing. And so, so you never want it, to see people get stuck. Right. So if I hear, if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is that um, being stuck in victim, in victim mode really inhibits growth um, in other areas, it just kind of gets you stuck. Yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate you capturing it that way. Um, that yes, I think when, when, when people don't own it, um, there is a stuckness that, that comes with it. Um, there, there's a similarity with grieving, you know, the loss of a loved one, uh, or the mm -hmm. loss of a relationship, that inner talk of I can never be the same again. Well, yes, that's true, but that doesn't mean you're supposed to um, stay stuck or stay in that grief. You're, right. you're supposed to work through that loss so that way you can understand, well, how those experiences are now you or a part mm -hmm. of you. Absolutely. And so, and so I think um, that movement forward, no matter how slow or what the pace might be, is very important. So talk to me for a minute, um, like I am not a person of faith and am um, in crisis and in, in trauma and struggle, what importance does faith play in the healing of trauma and uh, the, you know, getting, getting your life back online? Well, what I've noticed... For a lot of people who um, don't embrace uh, a faith, and I and I mean that word embrace, I use that word intentionally because I do talk to people who have a loose understanding of some type of spirituality. Um, when I talk to people who don't have an, an embraced faith, um, the existentialist in them really does get um, really does get um, provoked. Mm. Um, they are wondering, okay, so this happened to me. So what's the purpose of life? Who controls life? Um, why did this happen to me? Um, are things just loosely scattered through the universe and it's just gonna bump into me at any given time? Um, and so people start thinking um, about their own sense of value when, when, when they experience trauma, um, they think about things as one would understandably, um, um, uh, as someone would under, have a sense of understanding that trauma does that to us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, we, are, we are wrestling with who we are at our deepest levels when it comes to trauma. So faith then becomes an anchoring point for those questions? I would say a wrestling point. Um, okay. I would say that people 
um, of faith will wrestle with God. Um, I say people. I would say that people who aren't uh, of, of faith will wrestle with with um, um, God. Um, I think the best way to capture that is in the back of our minds when a person would verbally say, I don't believe there's a God, but when something deeply traumatic happens to them, there's an assumption that they are safe or someone is going to keep them safe. Mm -hmm. So they'll turn back to God in one way or another and say, you're supposed to keep me safe. What happened? Or the universe was supposed to keep me safe. What happened? Um, And so I think, I think that, that we're designed to go to that level when we're deeply hurt because we want to be safe. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, I'm just curious, um, any questions you want to ask, ask me about the podcast or work or life or anything? Oh, gosh. So um, tell me, tell me a little bit more, Jill, about the, uh, because you said you just recently did a seminar with some pastors, right? Yes, yes. I would love to hear some a little bit more about that. Well, I did two um, two series. It was for a state conference for pastors, and um, did two classes. And one was on uh, the state of mental health and how we refer to and address mental health as a church. And the second one was on pastors and their own mental health and how that's addressed. Um, this the second one, you know, is is super impactful because of talking to a bunch of pastors. We know that uh, being a pastor comes with stress and is hard, and uh, and we're dealing with all sorts of things that are outside of our skill set, and yet we yeah. still need to deal with them. Um, I talked a little bit about my own story of. Um, just coming to terms with how the crises that I was dealing with had really exponentially opened the door to the Christ, my childhood crisis and trauma and kind of compounded that. And so we talked about kind of the multiplying effect of, of trauma that can happen and the, the problems with not dealing with it. And also just talked about the, the higher rates of, of just of suicidality, of depression, anxiety, and everything that clergy deal with because of the because of the expectations on them. One of the things that you know I said is that uh, you know ten percent of the people in your church uh, love you, and ten percent will try to oust you, and eighty percent will say good sermon on Sunday and not think about you again the rest of the week. Well, that creates until there's a crisis, and then everybody yeah. needs you and so that creates some angst um and some Mm. some a a log jam Mm -hmm. of emotions and problems the first session in talking about pastors in or talking about how we address mental health in the church was just basically talking about how are we addressing people who are neurodivergent how we are addressing people who have a mental health crisis do we preach about it from the platform do we do we talk about about it in um, accepting terms in the sense that uh, mental health is physical health. And we talk about physical health and, you know, diabetes and, and heart issues and lung issues. We talk about all
all of that and cancer quite openly, but we're ashamed to talk about mental health. And part of it is, I think we're ill-equipped to do so. And we feel under, under-equipped to talk about it. And the other piece is that there is um, some underlying beliefs in the church that say we should be able to, as Christians, be able to pray about things, rely on God, and it should, that should be enough. Mm -hmm. And that there isn't the need for outside clinicians like yourself, because we have God. Well, the reality is that God uses people like you to heal and to help heal people that have, have wounds of the heart. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. And that's not a negative or a derogatory um, against, against faith and against the church. So that's kind of a bird's eye view of what we did. Great. I, I, I think, um, you know, over the last, you know, even six, seven months, I've seen several pastors coming in just with vicarious traumatization. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and um, the assumption that um, prayer prayer almost creates an isolating factor for, for pastors where they don't mm-hmm. feel very known right. and they're not completely certain who to, to connect with or who to talk to. And right. the idea of coming to a counselor, um, seeing a counselor is almost um, kind of an admission of defeat in some way or another, or some type right. of stigma that comes along with it. Right. Instead of that being a um, positive or a strengthening yeah. factor, it becomes one of isolation and, and of shame. And and one of the things I talked about was um, I had a major mental collapse and ended up having mm-hmm. to close my church and um, had mm-hmm. a long-term hospitalization. And, and one of the things I talked about was just the guilt and shame that I felt after that. If I'm not a pastor, then who am I? Am I, if I'm not, if I'm not, um, in that role, then I don't have a title and nobody calls me and nobody wants me or needs me. So what Mm -hmm. is my, what is my purpose? And, Mm -hmm. and if I have a call on my life, if I'm not doing that right now, then have I, have I somehow neglected what God created me to do? Mm -hmm. And so there was all these questions swirling around that felt like, I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do with my life. And in the economy of God, I couldn't understand how my life, saving my life was so much more important than a church full of people that were looking to find community and find Mm -hmm. God. So it was some very hard questions. And so that's some of what, what we shared also. Well, I hope it was well received because that's a, those are some You've got a, a quite a few really uh, important messages in the middle of that, plus with some lessons learned. I hope. Yes. Uh, I, I hope you were able to connect with others. I hope so too, and nobody threw anything or walked out. So I think we we at least uh, we at least made it past first base there. <laughs> <laughs> so. So, well, Michael, it has been a joy to talk to you and um, I appreciate the good work that you're doing. And I just thank you for just sharing your perspective today with us. Sure, Jill. I appreciate the invite and uh, uh, I've enjoyed talking to you as well. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. 
You can find Jill at JillRiley.com, on Facebook at JillRiley.Author, Twitter at JillRileyAuthor, and Instagram at JillRiley.Author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at Jill at JillRiley.org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day.